ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the sixth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, a jury of his peers. For more information, including photos and video, go to ajcbreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. And new this season, join the Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. He realizes that, let me get the hell out of here, he gets into back into his car, speeds away. At some point, it's like, oh my God, I forgot my boy. So he tries calling Quincy twice. Quincy can't answer because he's in the process of dying right now. He was not looking at me, was not looking at defense. He wasn't looking at the jury. He was staring at Nick Benton. And then he looked back over to me. In that moment, I thought, well, he's gonna, he's about to ID. We have fingerprint technology. We have DNA, we have trace DNA, we got ballistics, we got all of this. And we have the ability to determine what actually happened. The state wants you to throw all that away and base your decision on the word of a felon. Nicholas Benton didn't testify in his own defense. We on the jury do hear from his mom, who says Nicholas couldn't have done it. And now, the testimony and evidence phase is over. So here we are. A silent defendant, no smoking gun, shaky eyewitness testimony, inconclusive video evidence. On the other hand, we've been presented with strong evidence against Benton from the two cell phone towers. The record of calls and texts was irrefutable. I mean, the defense couldn't exactly put up its own cell towers in rebuttal. But was it enough to persuade us to vote guilty? We were about to find out. The trial had come down to closing arguments. In a trial, the attorneys begin with opening statements, but they end with closing arguments. Opening statements, in theory, are a presentation of facts and testimony that the jury is about to hear. Not to mention a let's-get-acquainted moment for the lawyer to begin wooing the jury. Closing arguments, however, are the attorney's opportunity to tell the jury a story to weave together the narrative they've been building for the past days or weeks of trial. Closings can be climactic and passionate. Some attorneys have a gift for riveting oratory. Others only think they do. And some are content not to wow the jury, but to lead it. Without a lot of shouting and gesturing, they offer a logical, cohesive argument as to why the defendant is guilty or not guilty. 
If you've listened to earlier seasons of Breakdown, you'll remember we've talked about closing arguments before, how they don't work in court the way they do on TV. For one thing, judges tell juries that nothing the attorneys say is evidence. And the attorney doesn't suddenly sway the jury with force and fire of his or her oratory. Most trial lawyers say you've pretty much won or lost the jury before closing arguments begin. So you use the closing more to shore up support than to win it. Welcome back to Season 6 of Breakdown. I'm Kevin Riley, Editor-in-Chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and a juror in this murder case. And I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs writer. As I like to remind you, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support this kind of journalism, please subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Go to myajc.com slash subscribe. Both lawyers were clear and direct in their arguments. ADA Kara Convery said we on the jury would have to ignore a mountain of evidence that put Benton at or near the scene. Defense attorney Gerald Griggs took the opposite tack, of course. There is almost no evidence linking my client to the crime. This case is riddled with reasonable doubt. Before the judge turns the case over to us, he or she does what's called charging the jury. That is, he gives us a set of instructions about the law we are expected to follow. The thing about that is, and this is something that struck me with considerable force at the Benton trial, in the end, what the law means comes down to what each juror thinks. For example, you have to find that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Otherwise, you must acquit. But what exactly does reasonable doubt mean? Kevin kept a copy of the 11 pages of instructions that Judge John Goger gave the jury. Here's how his honor, relying upon the standard charge used by judges in Georgia, put it to the jury. And I quote, A reasonable doubt means just what it says. A reasonable doubt is a doubt of a fair-minded, impartial juror honestly seeking the truth. A reasonable doubt is a doubt based upon common sense and reason. It does not mean a vague or arbitrary doubt, but is a doubt for which reason can be given, arising from a consideration of the evidence, a lack of evidence, or a conflict in the evidence. Unquote. That's simple. Right, Kevin? Simple to you. In the end, though, the judge doesn't ask each juror, did you properly apply the principle of reasonable doubt as I put it to you? No. In fact, the interpretation of reasonable doubt is up to each juror. Judy Bloom, our lawyer on the jury, explains it this way. We all have to interpret it ourselves. This is the law that we're charged with. This is it. And we have to read it and interpret it ourselves and apply it. That's our job. And reasonable doubt is a basic and well-known point of law. Wait till we get to the points of law you've never heard of. Now, Goger reveals the alternate juror, lucky number 13. He tells her that her work is done and she is free to go. I couldn't read her reaction. She didn't seem happy about it, but she might have been turning cartwheels in her head. Anyway, she went back to the jury room, got her stuff, and was gone. Now, Goger gave us his next instructions. Go get lunch, and while you're gone, choose a foreman. Make it unanimous. Be back in an hour. So we're filing back into the jury room. A fellow juror, Judy Bloom, again, is walking behind me. She says, I know who should be our foreman. My first thought was, good. They had somehow informally come up with someone. But it turned out Judy was pointing at me. Others in the room said they agreed, although I couldn't tell if it was unanimous. So I said, I'm willing to do it, 
but don't you think we should discuss it? Judy sort of jokingly said, those in favor? Everyone said, aye. And I said, then you're serious. Everyone said, yes. Here's Judy Bloom explaining why she did that to me. I was certain that that's what was going to happen. So I, I was the first to speak up. I just was sure that's what it should be. And you have experience dealing with a lot of people and people getting off task and wanting to talk about this or that. I just, I just thought you were the ideal candidate. It was nice to hear that after the trial. But at the time, I wasn't feeling anywhere near that confident in my ability to organize this effort. I was tired, and I wasn't sure I'd have the energy to do this right. But I also could hear my dad's voice. You've got a job to do here. Do it. And then everybody went to lunch. So, Kevin, did, did you go to lunch? I've covered cases in that courthouse and the cafeteria. I usually bring mine. Yeah, Bill, I uh, wanted to grab a quick lunch, so I went down to that cafeteria and probably ate something that you're familiar with, right? I grabbed one of those soggy Chick-fil-A sandwiches they offer, yeah. And I got got a bottle of water and treated myself to a cookie. You got to get a cookie. Yeah, absolutely. And and so then I went back to the jury room quickly by myself because I really wanted to think about how was I going to do this? What was I going to do? It's not like they've got a copy of, you know, how to be a jury foreman for dummies sitting there in the jury room. You have no guidance whatsoever as a juror and especially as a foreman. I had to think about where was I going to start? Back in the courtroom, the judge asks whether we've chosen a foreman. I meekly raise my hand to indicate that it's me. Here's a quick verdict on Judge Goger. He's one of the most respected jurists on the bench in Georgia because of his incredibly detailed knowledge of the law. He's the author of several books, including Georgia Criminal Trial Practice. It's 2,100 pages long and $526 on Amazon. Goger kept a tight rein on the courtroom. Every message he sent was, I'm in charge of this courtroom and things will be done my way. I appreciated the clarity of his instructions and how he treated the jury. We all saw him in our own way. Here's juror Judy Bloom. I thought he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He sat up there wise and patient. He let the children play, the prosecutor and the defense. He ran them in when he felt like he needed to. Juror Elizabeth had her own take. He seemed kind of grumpy, but when in, in regards to us, he was very polite. I didn't expect to be like treated like the most important people in the courtroom, but that's how he made you feel. He was always apologetic if we had to wait. He was very nice. Goger issues a few more instructions, and now comes the moment that, as an editor, I've heard about dozens of times over the years. The reporter will call or text from the courthouse. The case has gone to the jury. We'd heard from everyone we were going to hear from and seen all the evidence we were going to see. I told you we were unable to talk about the case all week and how odd that was. But actually, I realized it made things less complicated. You don't take positions you can't take back, and you don't ask your fellow jurors what they think. So there had been no disagreements, no arguments, no wounded feelings. Now it was time for all that. Nicholas Benton's fate was in the hands of 12 strangers. When we get back to the jury room, all 11 of them are looking at me. It reminds me of the very first year I coached my son's t-ball team. I walk onto the field carrying the equipment bag, which somehow confers absolute authority on me. All these eyes are turned to me, 
and all I'm doing is holding the bag, so to speak. I realized then, as I realize now, that the first thing I do will be really important. So the first thing in the jury room. One juror thinks we should close the window shades because the room is so hot. It's July in Atlanta, after all. We can louver them open just enough to let some light in. Another thinks we should turn off the lights and maybe make it a little cooler. I think we're going to have to agree on a bunch of really important, complicated stuff. Let's start off by agreeing about something easy. So I broke an agreement that the shades would stay down and the lights would stay on. And that was the case for all of our time in the jury room. Our first unanimous decision. Here's what I decided to tell my fellow jurors. I've never done this before. I want to go about it in a way I'm familiar with. I tell them we will have some rules of the road, and I ask Judy to write them on the whiteboard. Let each person finish their point. No interruptions. Raise your hand for the foreman to recognize you before you speak. Occasionally, we will just poll the room to see where we are. Anyone can call for a halt when we just needed a break. I learned this last one during my not exactly glorious high school football career. The officials would gather the team captains before the game. One of the things they tell us is who could call a timeout, whether it was just the team captains or anyone on the field. I decided that because this deliberation was likely to be intense and stressful, anybody on the field could call a timeout. The juror named Elizabeth, the youngest among us, summed up most of the jurors' reactions to this approach. I liked your rules that you started from the very beginning, putting up rules on the board about whether or not we follow them the whole time um, to the letter. That's another thing, but I thought that was a good way to start, I think. Judy and Elizabeth wrote all 16 of the charges against Benton on the chalkboard. And sometime during all this, a deputy brought in the evidence, photos and reports from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the medical examiner and the cops, plus some articles of physical evidence, like the shell casings and some of the bullets that killed Reggie Koiku and Fat Weish. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Many of the jurors wanted to take a vote right away. They're anxious to talk, but I see peril in that. I've worked in newsrooms for a long time and seen many complicated stories debated. If you let someone state their position right away, before the issue is deeply explored, the impulse will be to defend it at all costs rather than arriving at the truth or the answer. At this moment, I need to lead, to assert clear direction without being too obvious about it. So we don't take an up or down, guilty or not guilty vote. To the jurors, I said, let's go around the room and have each person talk about what questions they have about the case. But don't bring in people who aren't involved or evidence we haven't heard. That will only confuse an already confused set of circumstances. This was a useful exercise. Those questions helped us to figure out what our biggest concerns were, and that shaped our deliberations. Someone could write a book about jury dynamics. There could be a whole field of study on how juries interact. Well, of course, there is. Mike McGarrity is an Atlanta jury consultant who has spent years studying how juries work. It's really kind of a collision of personalities. And so what 
we look at when we see jurors deliberating in any type of case is who are the leaders? What are the issues of import to them? Who has the most dominant personality? And we also know that when jurors are discussing a case, when they hear the issues in a case, everything they're hearing is filtered through their attitudes, through their beliefs, through their life experiences. The other part of the collision of personalities is who are the folks that are most strongly affixed to their views of the world and who are the most unrelenting in discussing those things. And at the end of the day, what you see is the people with the strongest beliefs and the, the best ability to articulate these beliefs in a persuasive way to other folks on the juror, on the jury. Uh, those are the ones who ultimately prevail and drive the verdict decision. McGarrity suggests that Kevin took just the right approach. He likens jury deliberations to Atlanta traffic. Sometimes it might go smoothly, but situations like this can bring out the worst in people. The classic example that we like to use that's actually pretty relevant here in Atlanta is the way some people behave when they're behind the wheel. You see some people who would never otherwise yell and scream and wave their fist at someone in any other environment act that way because they're engaged in something that, they're, that they really take seriously and is really important to them. And sometimes we see that in deliberations. We see people really vocally, ardently, and sometimes over the top, arguing for something that they really powerfully and strongly believe in to the point that they'll you know, do the best they can to squelch out any other voice that disagrees with them. No question, the primary disappointment for us was the silence of Nicholas Benton. The ultimate decision on whether to testify, of course, is made by the defendant. Some have taken the stand over their attorney's strong objections. Other times, the attorney is able to convince his client that testifying would be a major mistake. But juries don't understand that. They have the very human need for the accused to take the stand and proclaim his innocence, to explain why he couldn't have done this thing. The jury has heard from everybody else at that point. Why not him? The judge admonished us that we should not attach any meaning to the defendant's decision not to testify. He's under no obligation to do so. And okay, we get that. But still, the natural conclusion, if he's not talking, then he must be hiding something. Here are some of my fellow jurors talking about the absence of Nick Benton's voice in the trial. Each of these folks was kind enough to talk with me after the trial. Here's juror Sangeeta Patel, who wanted to see Benton testify. I did, very much. And I always thought that he's going to be coming up on a stand. I wanted to hear from defendant. Because that's the only part he could prove himself not guilty. If he wanted, if he pleaded not guilty, he should have said his side, why he's not. But at the same time, I know that DA, the prosecutor would grill him. And he was not strong enough to stand that. That I could see with his physical appearance, that he wasn't strong enough to stand the cross-examination. Because of course, defense attorney would have been soft and mellow and okay, say whatever you want. But once it comes to the cross-examination, they would have really pulled him apart. That's why I think the defense did not put him on the stand. But I really wanted to hear his part of the story. 
In the absence of the defendant's testimony, all the jurors had to go on was what they had seen of Benton in the courtroom. Juror Joe Ransom said he kept an eye on the defendant throughout the trial. You know, I was wondering if they was going to put him on the stand. I'm pretty observant. I watch his uh, actions sitting behind the defendant's table as well as his lawyer. And at no point did I see the lawyer conversing with him. He had a blank stare on his face. I seen him smile one time the last day. Juror Elizabeth said she, too, wanted to hear from Benton, but she made the same observation as Joe Ransom. Absolutely. After being in that courtroom all week and meeting his family and all his friends, and I definitely wanted to. I didn't think I was going to be able to. But, yeah, I mean, I also wanted to, him to look in our direction. I thought that was strange. He never once looked at us. But Nick looked down or straight ahead the entire time. So that was issue number one for us, that Nick Benton didn't testify. Sure, we were not supposed to hold that against him or draw any inference from it. Sure. Then there was issue number two, the cell phone evidence. And it wasn't just the calls and texts, although they were compelling. By triangulating on the signals from cell towers, you can get an idea of where a phone was when it was used. The process is not exact, but it puts you in the neighborhood. According to the FCC, using three cell towers to triangulate a signal can locate a phone within at least a three-quarter square mile area. And the closer the towers are together, say in a busy urban area, the more accurately they can place the phone. In his early interview with Detective Burhalter, Nick Benton said his cell phone was always with him. He didn't share it with anyone or leave it anywhere. So investigators were reasonably certain that wherever Benton's phone was, he was there with it. Cell phone experts testified that much of Benton's phone activity that night put him in the vicinity of the Valero and the Burger King. Remember those phone calls Benton made to Quincy Weich as he was dying? When Benton's phone placed two calls to Weich's phone minutes after the shooting, the triangulation showed his cell phone was moving away from the murder scene. Meanwhile, we've told you that the two men killed that night and Nick Benton had made a total of 27 calls among them over a two and a half hour period. The one strap text, Weich's phone's warning to Benton's phone that Koiku had a gun sent just 10 minutes before the shooting was especially damning. The expert testimony on the cell phones was just as you'd imagine it to be. Long and technical and not always fascinating. But the overall impact was pretty massive. Here's Elizabeth. That's not where the murder actually took place. It took place in the Burger King. So, you know, maybe he walked up to the car, but how do I know he was then across the street of the Burger King? You know, there's questions. It's not not always like CSI. But the cell phone's testimony, which was long and very technical, that plus the text messages and calls, mainly the text messages and calls, but also the GPS locating where or about the cell phone was. Sankita Patel was likewise impressed by the substance of the cell phone evidence. Yes, uh, cell phone evidence, it was interesting for my personal knowledge that, oh, this is possible. I knew that GPS tracking can be done, but I did not realize police do this much investigation and try to put bits and pieces together where who is where. More perhaps than any other single element of evidence or testimony, the cell phone stuff was a solid win for the prosecution. But in addition to Ben's decision not to testify, there were three other big issues for us to consider. 
First was the lack of physical evidence, especially the murder weapon. Second was the question of identification. The video evidence was strong, but as we've said, inconclusive. Was that Nick Benton on the Valero video? It certainly could have been him. You don't see that video and immediately say, that's not him. You say, sure could be him. The only thing we knew with reasonable certainty was that Benton's cell phone had been in the vicinity of the murder scene that night. Third was the credibility of the state's star witness. Carlton Redding was the only living person who had seen and interacted with the killer that night. Could he positively state that it was Benton he saw? And Redding was problematic for the prosecution and for the jury. For the state's star witness to matter, we had to believe what he said. Redding's credibility was a major question mark in the jury room. So let's break it down. Number one, the physical evidence. Jurors were deeply concerned about the lack of a murder weapon in particular. Here's Judy Bloom. We never even heard word one about the gun that killed these people. And I'm thinking, why don't we know that? So for me, it was hard to, I mean, we kept hearing that it was the 40 caliber bullets, but nobody put a gun of any kind in his hand except the guy in the front seat who I wouldn't believe him if he told me what time it was. Remember what I said about Carlton Redding's credibility? Judy didn't think much of it, obviously, but we'll get back to that. Our fellow juror Sangita also had issues with the lack of a murder weapon. We should have more evidence. Like I said, there was no gun and no car. It, the car cannot disappear in a thin air. If they did so much investigation, we all watch TV detective shows and all that. First thing they look for is a weapon. How can you not find a weapon? If he shot, they gotta be somewhere. If you arrested him, of course you took his uh, interview and asked him questions. One thing you will ask, where is the gun? He can just not say, I don't know. Of course he knows where the gun is or wherever he stashed it. That is one way to look at it. She also talked about the disturbing lack of Benton's fingerprints. Then if the question comes, was him really shooting or somebody else was shooting? There was no fingerprints. They couldn't prove that fingerprints. All we have is a bullet, but no gun. The evidence was not given that it was handled by him. His fingerprints were nowhere to be found. And finally, Elizabeth talks about the lack of Benton's DNA at the scene. There was no DNA evidence linking him to the crime. Uh, no gun. I thought the no DNA was interesting. Usually you think of the fingerprints being key. I just thought that was just not a part of this case. Judy Bloom, the lawyer, said she thought the state showed too much evidence that didn't seem to matter, and not enough evidence that did. Her implication was that the prosecution didn't have the kitchen sink, so it threw in the rest of the kitchen to compensate. I found a lot of the evidence very unconvincing or, or, or useless. I mean, we spent a lot of time hearing about different people at the car lot. What the heck did that have to do with anything? I don't know why we heard about that. We had lots of conversation about their, the bloody bodies and the damage to the bodies. I mean, it was gross, it's sad. I think it almost hurt the prosecution's case. It was too much. I felt like, enough. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. We spent our deliberation under an avalanche of information. The problem was there was no single thing that makes or breaks the case. As I said, we isolated on three central issues as a way to focus our discussion. And that prompted a really important question. Several jurors began chewing on one thing. Could the murders have happened the way the state says they did? Could one person have fired all 10 of the shots that killed Koiku and Weish? Two jurors, one of them Elizabeth, came up with the idea of recreating the shooting and the scene as a way to test the state's theory. This turned out to be an important exercise as we closed in on a verdict. So physical evidence, or lack thereof, was our first big question. And now, here's number two, the identification and the videos. Near the beginning of deliberation, all of us agreed that we wanted to see the video evidence again. So we wrote the requisite note I signed it, and we hit the switch that illuminates a light bulb in the court, our signal that we want something. We're ushered back into the courtroom, half expecting somebody to hand us a remote control so we can zip back and forth through the video. You know, the way you do it at home or on your computer. Turns out that the jury asking a question and returning to the courtroom is a very big deal. Everybody's in court, and everybody's watching us as we come back in. The lawyers, the defendant, the families, even some earnest-looking interns. They don't hand you a remote control. Instead, we look up at the large screen behind the witness stand, and the assistant DA replays the videos. No stopping, no rewinding or fast-forwarding. All we can do is ask to see it again. So we do. The prosecutor told me later that our return to the court sent a chill through her. So when I heard it's a question that it was the video... Because I am who I am, I was a little worried because I was worried that somebody had a doubt back there that my defendant was, in fact, the person that's on the video. Throughout the whole trial and in preparation for the trial, we are trying to think about, as prosecutors, what are going to be the issues um, that you all have back there in that jury room. And one of the issues that I thought would possibly come up is that this defendant is not this defendant, the person on the video. So I was nervous. Justice Convery was concerned. Defense attorney Griggs was heartened. I thought that was a good sign. I thought that they were being thoughtful, working through the evidence. They were comparing what witnesses said to the video. And the best way to do that is to watch the video again. And again, just thinking that if you watch that video, one, you see the person touch the car. You see the person with the book bag. If you add that to the lack of forensic evidence, I thought it was a good thing. So after we'd freaked out the entire courtroom, we returned to the jury room. Here's what some of the jurors thought of the videos once we'd seen them again. Joe Ransom was persuaded by what he saw on the screen. The main thing that got me on it was the video at the flare where he uh, showed him going to the car with the book bag and then the Obviously, the book bag was in the car at the Burger King. I mean, that's pretty much the easiest way to come up with that. 
Judy Bloom came away from the video with something that sure sounded like reasonable doubt. A very powerful piece was the video of him at the um, gas station. I am convinced that was him at the gas station. They didn't prove he went over to the Burger King. I think he was, but I don't think they proved it. Elizabeth sent some resistance on the jury to seeing the videos again. Honestly, this video surveillance at the Valero gas station, you can't see his face very much. That's why I wanted to see those tapes again, because I wanted to see the walk and the hair and everything. I felt a little like everybody was, not everybody, some people were ready to get this over with and had kind of made up their minds or felt that there was no reason that we needed to view the tapes again, that, that we'd viewed them sufficiently and that why would we need to see the tapes again it was some of some, kind of the way I felt because when I asked to see them I felt like I kind of had to push so we hashed out Benton's refusal to testify we hashed out the cell phone and video evidence we hashed out the lack of physical evidence and we found ourselves in a familiar place the credibility of the state star witness there was simply no getting around whether we believed Carlton Redding it loomed over our ultimate decision at all times Carlton Redding was going to be problematic on the stand. Kara Convery knew that going in. Um, I knew I was going to have some credibility concerns about him, but I wanted to do enough with him that you all could trust in what he was saying, at least as to the important parts of what happened out there. Elizabeth acknowledged that Redding was the most important witness of the trial. She started out believing him. Carlton was the only person alive who was at the scene to say that he that we know of to say that he was the person there. He actually seemed credible at first. After I thought about it, I kind of changed my mind later. But he seemed very credible at first because he was, his demeanor, he was calm, he was pretty well-spoken, he was the prosecution's witness, so he was being very cooperative. But also, he completely exonerated himself of any kind of blame for in the murder during his testimony. He had nothing to do with it. He was only the driver, didn't even know it was going down. So, you know, it made it a little hard to believe because he's up there telling you exactly what the prosecution is telling you, wants you to believe, saying he had absolutely nothing to do with it, just happened to, you know, be driving this guy. Judy Bloom also had serious credibility issues with Redding. I didn't believe a word he said. He had no motivation to tell this truth. Clearly, this is not a person who is in the habit of telling the truth. I found no reason to believe him. But Sangeeta Patel found Redding believable to a point. Sangeeta said she only believed Redding when he identified Benton from the stand. I think Carlton was saying the truth, but his testimony more was towards saving his own life, that I'm not involved in it, but I got dragged into it. He couldn't recognize defendant on the picture. When he was shown the defendant in a lineup, it took him longer to recognize him. Even then, then I put myself into his shoes, and even though we've been looking at him for a whole week, and those pictures came in front of us, the picture of defendant and the some other person was so similar that yes, anybody in the middle of the night in the dark looking at the defendant and not recognizing him is absolutely right. That's the only piece I believe him. Otherwise, rest of the, his actions were saving himself. And here's Joe Ransom. I think he is probably not too bad of a guy. He probably got has got into some trouble. But I think he got in a situation he wasn't expecting. And then when all the mess started happening, he flipped out. 
And I don't think he was in his right mind because anybody that's shooting, you're not going to run back to where they was at. <laughs> I mean, you just don't do that. So I think he was just scared to death. As for Redding's witness stand identification of Benton... I believed him in a sense because he mentioned his hair. And even if you don't see his face, you're going to remember most time what somebody's hair looks like. And my thinking on that is y'all saw me all week without a hat. I'd wear it every once in a while. If I, you seen me a week from now with my hat on, wearing the same clothes, you wouldn't know who I was. I mean, you can change just a little bit, and your appearance is going to look completely different. And I didn't think had any bearing on it because the build was about the same, and I say he was scared. He just caught a glimpse, and that was it. Hey, Kevin, we got another loose end to tie up. So Carlton Redding's credibility was such a big issue, but when he was running away from police up I-285, the police officer on the radio said he saw Redding throw a gun. Hey, he's grabbing a gun. He's grabbing a gun out of his pocket. He's going to throw it. Uh, he just threw the gun. Was there a gun? Of course, at that point, the cops thought Redding was the suspect, and after a shooting, they assumed what he was throwing was a gun. He's running from the cops. He's got warrants out for his arrest, and he realizes... I got weed on me. That's a bad thing if I get arrested. So he throws it into the woods. The cops eventually found it using dogs. Here's for a warning. When we get to episode five, you'll learn about the single factor that sealed our verdict. It was none of the things we just talked about. In fact, we didn't hear a word of testimony about it. Next on Breakdown. Your mind is just scrambled egg. You are just... I mean, just waiting for the night. You just feel like you're going to faint, honestly. And maybe that's just me, but before every verdict, I just, I feel like I'm going to faint. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Kevin Riley and Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound by Chris Basta at Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Chris Basta, Bo Emerson, and Billy Guin. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagor, Ryan Horn, and all the great people at the AJC, plus Chris Nicholson, Buddy Hall, and Judge Robert McBurney. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.